Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. Here, we're dedicated to driving a continued conversation about the importance of public presence in an online space. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This season, we're refocusing on the value of humanist perspective in the digital age and slowing down a bit to foster a culture of care and listening. On each new episode, we follow Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, as he takes us somewhere new to meet arts and letters students and faculty where they work. Today's episode features Christina Boyles, Assistant Professor of Culturally Engaged Digital Humanities at Michigan State University. Dean Long met with her in her office on the second floor of Bessie Hall to talk about her work in digital presence. Here are Christina and Dean Long. Welcome, Christina, to the Liberal Arts Endeavor. We're glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, we like to be in the spaces that faculty inhabit, so tell us a little bit about where we are. Well, we are in my office, um, which I recently reformatted to make a little bit more inviting and welcoming, so you'll notice a lot of pops of color. Um, But since most of my work is in Puerto Rico, I uh, unfortunately couldn't take you there with me. I wish I could have. Um, But this is actually where I do a lot of my video conferencing and calls with my community partners. Great. So you you have it's a it's a pretty uh, minimalist space with respect to things on your desk. I don't even you probably had your computer in your bag. So you're pretty mobile with with all your equipment and stuff. I am. I actually get a lot of jokes about are you leaving soon because uh, I like to keep my offices very sparse and clean. What about the standing desk? You liking that? I am. This is my first one. Um, So the department made sure that we all had the option of having standing desks. And I like it a lot, especially being on the move or wanting to kind of adjust settings as I'm doing video calls and give people different angles. Um, It's been really useful. And I see the rainbow here. So is there a story behind a rainbow? Just wanting to add more color. I am... I have actually more, I believe, dry erase markers than most of the other people in the department. So I'm a popular place to come and grab some. Excellent, excellent. So we've talked a lot in on the on the podcast about the our online scholarly presence and one of the things that we're kind of using as a way to um, facilitate and foster the use of online, uh, you know, the Reclaim hosting services and, and our domain of one's own um, engagement is to identify faculty who have really robust online presences and ask them to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about how they think about that and also that gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about your work. So I'd love to hear both kind of how you're thinking about your online presence and then um, your scholarly work, as it, which is it's an amazing website, it looks like. Thank you, yes. Um, well, uh, I think my background is a little different than most people you'll find, at least in the tenure track, um, in that my uh, first couple jobs out of grad school were um, being a DH postdoc, essentially helping start, launch a, a curriculum and a lab, and then I moved to another location and then ran my own lab. And so I'm always thinking about digital things as infrastructure, as building community, um, as ways to create relationships. And so um, I know I've annoyed some of the people on campus because I keep asking for more and more space for my domains account. I keep filling it up. Um, Some of the biggest things I've been working on there is having my students work with community partners every semester and create advocacy resources that are useful to them using a variety of media Um, They do images and podcasts and data visualizations, and then they talk about the ways in which these uh, different entities can be useful to those groups. Um, For my own scholarship, 
I work largely with a project called the Maria Memory Bank, which looks at the effects of Hurricane Maria mm. in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. Um, it's a digital open access repository of oral histories and oral stories of um, individuals' experiences. And we find this really important because um, you might remember that the media coverage of these kinds of events was was pretty difficult uh, and kind of downplayed the severity on, on the people in, in the Caribbean. And so we really find this to be a powerful way to intervene in some of those stories, to push back against the narratives that either they don't need help or things weren't as bad as people thought. Um, and also to acknowledge that um, with the onset of climate change, we're going to see events like these continue. And in fact, we have these last few months um, have seen a devastating wave of earthquakes mm. in Puerto Rico as well, um, with thousands of people now living outside. They're afraid to live in their homes. Um, and so realizing the ways in which we need to start mobilizing our resources as academics, as scholars, as advocates, um, to make sure that we're taking care of other people in the world in hopes that we also can develop some unique responses when, when climate change comes our way. Mm, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the process around the engagement with with the Maria Project. I mean, would you bring, are you bringing equipment down to Puerto Rico, and do you have structures to the interviews? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it's a few years uh, down the path, so we started out um, kind of trial and error, but what we've really settled on is um, we're partnering with about uh, six community organizations in Puerto Rico, and we're providing them with the digital technology needed to conduct the interviews, as well as training. Um, and so we talked to them about um, getting consent from anyone you work with, talk to them about interview protocol, um, especially making sure that we're not asking people to kind of rehash their traumas mm. for us. We're trying to enact um, what Eve Tuck and Kay Wang Yang call um, a rhetoric of refusal. So saying, no, we don't want to exploit the people we're working with, but we want them to share things that they're most comfortable with. And that means um, maybe not asking things like, tell me what happened to you during Hurricane yeah. Maria, but saying, can you tell me a bit about the place you live? Um, how, how have things been for you recently? Is there a memory you'd like to share with us? Um, and then we always have our um, interviewers uh, share information about if someone needs resources locally. And that might be medical resources, food resources, or mental health resources before they close the interview. Um, and then we, we take those interviews and they're um, loaded into an Omeka S site through our domains account oh, at MSU. Thank you. Um, and uh, we're slowly working our way into making sure that they have bilingual metadata, bilingual captioning, and that they are then made available on our site. So the partnerships that you have down there, how did those uh, arise? And one of the things that we're thinking a lot about with respect to community engaged work is trust building, reciprocity, really being respectful as it sounds like the rhetoric of re refusal mode of thinking about this really aligns with that. So yeah. you could t tell us a little bit about how that, uh, how that came about and how you're developing that trust. Well, in some ways I really lucked out. Um, I started presenting on um, kind of my earliest findings about Puerto Rico um, when I was a postdoc, and this was actually before Hurricane Maria, I was researching a historical hurricane that was similarly damaging, um, known as San Felipe in Puerto Rico, but also hit Florida. So you might have heard it called um, the Lake Okeechobee hurricane or the hurricane of 1928. And I was just saying, 
I just realized that this also hit Puerto Rico, but none of our resources talk about this. Um, I think partially because of language and partially because the naming structure where the storm is referred to differently. And one of my colleagues in the audience said, I'm Puerto Rican. I have family down there. Why don't you go down there and talk to talk to my family? And I did. <laughs> and so that was the, the first way the door kind of opened for me. Um, and since then, I, I've been going back a couple times every year um, just to keep maintain those relationships and try to expand those. Um, and I've been really lucky in that um, Lori Taylor at the Digital Library of the Caribbean introduced me to um, a couple individuals who work uh, at the University of Puerto Rico ac across their many campuses. Um, and so now I'm working with Nadia Rios and Marisa Gonzalez-Velez at Rio Piedras and um, Risha Chansky at the Mayaguez campus. And so we've kind of formed a little coalition who are seeking to develop this project, um, and we've been able to partner together on things like grants, but also just support. Yeah. Um, we're in the kinds of jobs that really allow us to to take on these creative endeavors, and we want to make sure that the community organizations and the activists are really focused on their work instead of, you know, helping us with ours. That's such an important distinction to make. Such a an important. It's important to be really intentional about that. What are some of the issues that have arisen in those conversations? Um, arisen in the conversations, the interviews that we've had. Yeah, and also just in terms of how are you ensuring that the the work is community led rather than in you know led and manipulated and framed purely by your scholarship or the scholars that you're working with. Well, I think one important thing is that there's no ideal outcome for mm -hmm. us. We don't see like a specific response from a participant as being more valuable than another. Um, we're not really looking to prove a specific point, um, but we're really looking to um, memorialize what has happened and to acknowledge people's experiences. Um, one of my collaborators, Risha, um, I think said it best as she said, like, witnessing someone else's experiences is a form of care. Mm. And so we really try to embody that with our community members. Um, and we've also tried to give them some options about how they share. So um, it, it has received some criticism from some organizations, but we, uh, we have allowed individuals to embargo their mm -hmm. information for a period of time or perhaps indefinitely if they so choose. Um, we have some folks who are fairly politically active who are participating, and um, right now things are pretty uh, tumultuous mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico. So mm -hmm. um, protesters ousted two governors this summer, and I think they're on track to oust a third, you know, in the upcoming months. And so we want to make sure that if uh, someone wants to share, but they, they're worried that they might be targeted for the kinds of information they're telling us, that we, we t treat that with care and respect. Where do you get pushback on that side of things? Oh, as, uh, grant funding agencies particularly, um, you know, you, you might hear the line, like, public funding is for, for the public. And so um, they want the information that we provide to be made fully public. And we really talk uh, in the grant proposals and with my collaborators, we've talked about how um, just as you might enact with indigenous communities kind of different protocol about whose information should be accessible and, and some of that information that should not be available to certain communities, we really try to talk about um, in the same ways. Like we see Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican citizens as deserving of sovereignty and that the colonial government that's um, being enacted there is forcing um, 
situations that might be difficult and we don't want to um, make our interviewees act within these specific confines, but we want to give them options that recognize their sovereignty over their own information. It's such an important project in, in terms of thinking intentionally about how you are already caught up within a kind of colonial structure and trying to undermine it or at least minimize its effects within the context of undertaking the project. Yeah, and it's, that's absolutely challenging, I think, because, um, I mean, if we, if we acknowledge kind of the history of, of education, you know, it also has some problematic pieces. Um, so it's recognizing that maybe we are working from both a flawed but also a, um, a, a construct that also has certain advantages. How you began your uh, talking about your work by talking about your students, and I'm wondering how you integrate students into that though this kind of work and 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 how you frame that. I I know you have students you know doing digital projects, and as you mentioned, your digital your online space is constantly growing, which is good, um, and part of that is because students are contributing to it. Absolutely. Well, one of the big things I've tried to do is adopt some of these values um, that we've implemented in the Maria Memory Bank and, and transition them to um, conversations to be had with students. So every semester of students design consent forms um, around their own advocacy work and we talk about what it, consent looks like and what informed consent looks like and why it might be valuable to for your participants to have a fully um, fleshed out concept of, of what your goals are for a project and, and how their information might be used. Um, and we also talk about privacy. Um, how can they ensure that the data people share with them is made private if they so wish, or is you know not uploaded to the cloud? Because yeah. we know like things like Google or other entities might share that information with third parties. Um, so a big a big um, push that I've made is to try to like share those theories with my students in a way that's really accessible in their classroom setting. Um, but I've also been fortunate um, to have two research assistants work with me on the project. So I've had individuals who've actually come with me to Puerto Rico and helped do interviews, and then some who've also helped with uh, transcription and translation. Are those graduate students or undergrads? So far, it's been undergrads. Uh -huh. Great. Um, we have a lot of impressive undergrads yes, we do. that we can yes, work we with. Um, yeah. So that's been amazing. Um, but um, I'm hoping that that will also expand to graduate students in the upcoming years. Yeah, well, it's been one of the most rewarding uh, parts of my academic life to have some amazing undergraduate research assistants, and those experiences are transformative for the students, but equally transformative for the faculty working with them, as you can see them grow, and they often bring real insight in, into the work. So I'm really glad that you're you're working with them in this project. Absolutely, I feel like I learned so much from them. The a key to so much of this work are practices of self-reflection. We mm -hmm. talk about the importance of self-reflection in a liberal arts education all the time, asking students to write reflectively, thinking ourselves about how we um, reflect on our experiences, are mindful about the ways we interact with one another in the world. Do you have practices of self-reflection that you um, undertake and, or, and also that you advocate for with your students? Well, I actually think um, working with uh, community partners in Puerto Rico has really transformed my, my notions of what self-reflection looks like. Um, I think before 
that I was often doing things like writing on my own or reading on my own, uh, which I still think is very valuable. But one of the things I've really grown to learn from um, is reflecting upon the stories that people are willing to share and using that as a site of, of really considering the kinds of spaces that I operate in and how those are not those are not common or typical. That's not everyone's experience. Um, just yesterday, I was watching a video of an individual we interviewed um, who was itinerant during Hurricane Maria, and he had to take shelter in a, in a wooden building. And it was a lot like the end of the movie Twister. He, um, he tied himself to um, some of the structure, um, and then he just held on for the storm. And I just was overwhelmed. I, I actually had to stop the video many times. Um, and, and he was not even emotional. He was very matter-of-fact and um, just wanted people to know that this was a real experience that happened to people and that other people who didn't have homes were having difficulty accessing aid and resources, um, which was difficult for everyone given the hindrances of the Puerto Rican government and the federal government, um, but was especially difficult for people who couldn't claim an address. Um, and so really listening to those stories and thinking about the ways in which um, climate change is really starting to affect people's lives around the globe, and it will continue to affect them. Um, we know that Puerto Rico is kind of at the forefront of these experiences, but we also know that it, it's going to come and be a part of our everyday lives you know, in the upcoming years. And so thinking about ways that we can really care for each other uh, on, a, on a local but a more global scale has been a really powerful form of reflection for me. Yeah, the power of your work is the way in which it brings that very um, singular individual experience and contextualizes it in this, you know, global forces and also local forces. I mean, you've got all the layers that are at play in this, and that's, that makes for both a um, really deeply meaningful um, experience and set of uh, set of artifacts of scholarship really is which is and 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 witnessing documents how are you thinking about the how that fits into let's say the traditional university lifestyle one of the things we are talking and working on very um, intentionally on here in the college is how are we creating an infrastructure to support mm -hmm. the kind of work that you're doing, the transformational work, both for your students, for communities, and for yourself, for all of us, to think about these massive challenges that we're facing as a globe, and to do it in a way that has texture and nuance. And yet, also, you know, you have a career trajectory, you have promotion, and, 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 and all of those things that, that you have to go through. So how are you thinking about those dimensions? I actually think, um, there are a number of challenges that come with that. Um, so I, part of the reason that I was so drawn to this particular position is um, I knew this particular department was um, very open to community-engaged scholarship. And there is a long history of that in rhetoric and composition. My own background is actually um, kind of tangentially in rhetoric and composition. It wasn't my primary focus. Um, and so feeling that they were very accepting of the type of work I was doing and so they were comfortable um, when it came time for tenure promotion, uh, putting my name forward. So that's been really exciting. But I think on a, on a larger scale, um, it's been something that has posed some challenges um, kind of in academia at large and also kind of in DH. Um, I think a lot of 
uh, structures aren't really designed to support community engagement. It takes a lot of time, energy, and resources. And it can be very difficult if you are trying to partner with a group or a person and you, for example, that involves kind of the exchange of some sort of resource. Um, in the university world, generally you get reimbursed for those kinds of things, but our community partners often can't wait for those reimbursements. And so that poses a real barrier to um, working with them. And then I think too, like there are some very exciting digital humanities uh, products that involve community engagement, but there's still a huge segment of the field um, where that work is a little bit um, Le maybe more questioned is the way to put it. And so um, really feeling like you have to make the, the scholarly justification for working with specific communities. Um, so I feel very lucky again here because um, I'm part of a cluster, CEDAR, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which is a group of amazing scholars, Julian Chambliss, Sharon Leon, and Kristen Erland. And they're all doing amazing digitally engaged and community engaged work. And so They've all been great models and mentors for me, and I think truly part of the reason this work has really taken off for me since I arrived at MSU is due to their guidance and their support. Right. We, 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 the, 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 the strategy of hiring you all together was exactly to get the critical mass and to try to model ways of doing scholarship that expands the traditional notion of scholarship itself. So we need to be thinking both, both about what does that mean for the institution, and also as you enact it, how can we, I mean, and this really is a question for you, what would be um, helpful ways to um, create the space that supports that kind of work? I hear um, part, some very practical things around, okay, not presuming people can be reimbursed and put money out in front, so we need to be thinking about that. Do we have structures that we could deploy to have some uh, cash in hand for certain kinds of projects for, for certain reasons? As we think about what a 21st century land-grant public research university is supposed to be, we have to be thinking about these much more textured and robust forms of community-led scholarship. Absolutely. I think um, in addition to things like having resources out front, um, I think promoting community-engaged scholarship as a, an accepted form of um, research or academic work um, within our community is really important, um, both in digital humanities and then in the institution at large. I also think, uh, you know, working with the many different segments of DH we have on our campus, because we are kind of varied and spread out, um, Ensuring that we have a place where there is a clear set of processes or an area of support for this kind of work. And that might be um, through, it could be, you know, Matrix or the Digital Scholarship Lab. Um, it could be any of these places. I think what really is needed is kind of an, an ingestion process, um, a support or um, um, kind of a intake appointment process mm. where you can talk to people who might have the opportunity to help you. Um, and, and then kind of building up from there. I know I spent most of my first year here just setting up individual meetings with people in hopes that I could find help. And, and I got great partnerships. Um, working with Scout Calvert at the library, who's a data management expert. Um, Andy Boyles-Peterson is my technical director for the project, also at the library. Um, meeting with uh, Robin Dean at the library and Elisa Landaverde, um, both of who are going to help me with kind of managing the digital project and, and creating the transcriptions and translations. Um, but I think if there had been a way to streamline that process, it would have been far less intimidating. And I think we 
could have maybe even produced some of the work faster, mm. which is not as valuable to me as a person. But I think in, in terms of a, the academic world in which you're expected to publish and produce very quickly, um, time becomes very important. Yeah, the collaboration that we have with the MSU libraries is so critical to this. And I'm really glad to hear that you're making those connections. We need to think about, well, what's the infrastructure for ensuring that as we bring new people into the community or as some of our uh, scholars take on digital work or community-engaged work and want, want to have a sense of how that can function effectively and how we don't have to use a lot of time building the infrastructure. It can be there for people when they need it. One of the things I'm thinking a lot about is how the institution is learn, needs to learn to support this kind of work. So just the comments that you've made have been helpful to me as I think about, okay, what do we need to put in place? But we also need to think about how are we getting a dialogue and feedback going so that we don't have to relearn these things. Every time we have a new faculty member, a group of faculty members coming in, we need to create the infrastructure and the processes that the institution needs to learn to say, oh yeah, we know this is a, a project that requires this, here you go. Because we're getting more of that as we begin to recruit more faculty doing community-led, community-engaged work. And we need to figure out the, the systems that support that. Absolutely. And I think it would be so exciting to have, I don't know if it could be a learning community with AAN or if it would be a center. Or um, I even, I think Cedar would be a great kind of starting point as um, we've kind of developed a small set of, we're calling them Cedar Clinics, but ways to kind of reach out to people who are doing this kind of work and kind of give them a starter kit um, depending on their needs. But I think there are a lot of opportunities for collaboration on our campus. So I think it's just about kind of deciding which direction to take and, and trying it out yeah. and seeing how it goes. And Cedar, for those who haven't heard the, the name, is the Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research center, so named after the Red Cedar River, oh, nicely done. So, and, and we've been thinking a lot about, okay, what's, now that we have the, the people in place, how are we taking Cedar itself to the next level? And I think this is an, a really good uh, set of ideas that we, we can bring to that. As you think about your own work, one of the things I want to ask in these contexts is how can I help as the dean, how can we as the dean's office, how can the university help you be successful? Um, I think that's a great question. Um, some of the things we've already talked about, um, I do rely heavily on, on CEDAR and my colleagues there, and so continued support and growth for the CEDAR initiative um, is always important. Um, I think ongoing support for uh, the production of digital projects or digital books, um, particularly in tenure and promotion. And again, I'm lucky there. I have a couple colleagues in this department who've created digital books. Yeah. Um, but I know that that is still kind of a new thing writ large for our, our university. Um, and then I think also um, it'd be great to have more opportunities for I guess feedback. So maybe even like reading and research groups or writing groups where we can share not just writing but digital project work and where we're at and get feedback from other people. I found that to be pretty invaluable as I've been working through my own process and I think having that kind of support um, so that you're not trying to schedule you know one-on-one -on -one meetings with people over campus um, mm -hmm. and and hoping that you can find those resources but you you know right when you get here and then you feel like this place is is really a home for you and your work yeah. um, would be would be invaluable. 
One of the things we've been thinking about in in trying to facilitate and foster and support this work is this framework that we talk about as um, cultivating pathways of intellectual leadership, recognizing that faculty should have the capacity to articulate their their vision for the arc of their career, and we should be able to sort of from there move back into, okay, what would be milestones and of, of indicators that you're on your way, and then stepping stones that you can do over the next few years to, to get closer to that, to those goals, that contribution that you want to make. And as we've been thinking about that, we have been um, thinking in terms of a framework that is that takes the teaching research and service dimension of the promotion and tenure process and 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 just shifts your perspective on it a little bit to think about things like sharing knowledge, expanding opportunity and mentorship stewardship as ways of bringing the teaching research and service together in a more holistic way. So when you talk about well we need some support and for one another in developing work, communities of feedback and things like that. Well, if we have mentorship as a component of what we look for in our annual reviews, then you could talk about how I participated in and gave feedback to my colleagues' um, project, and that project now is at this stage, and um, part of that is due to the work we've done together. So we're not in that sort of such a self-centered modality. I like that a lot. Um, I know I, I, we just did a new review here, so um, I'm kind of in that mindset. And I know that the system we have now or the forms we have really kind of promote this. How many things did you publish and, and how much did you do of this? Um, but I really like the idea of, of working backwards, starting with your end goal and then creating milestones and really getting to create conversation around that. I think that would be really powerful. And I think that's how a lot of us approach our pedagogy when we're lesson planning. So it just makes sense that we think of our own work in that same framework. Yeah, one of the things I'm sensitive to is the degree to which when we ask students to come into the academy as graduate students, we, we in, in many cases, ask them to alienate themselves from the values they care most deeply about. And so what we're trying to do is think more intentionally about having graduate students and faculty think about their values, what, what, what values animate their work, and have those values be what empowers them to do that work and what then is recognized as we move through that. Um, because if we continue to ask people to, um, to, to go to an abstract standard that is not the same for everyone and it, and it requires some people to um, alienate themselves from doing the most important work, like the work that you're doing in Puerto Rico, then we're, we're not living up to the mission of the university, and we're also alienating faculty from their own sense of what's most important. And I think that really hits at the, the importance of the humanities. You know, I think a lot of us get into particularly um, humanistic fields because we have these very strong beliefs about um, how we can help the world be a better place or how we'd love to use our resources or our knowledge to um, to do something good, to be transformative, to break down harmful structures. And so I think, you know, coming at it from that framework really allows us to start engaging in that kind of meaningful transformation. Well, the, 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 the kind of dialogue that I know you bring into your research and to your pedagogy is exactly the kind of dialogue that we're going to need to model a different way of being together in the university that 
empowers us to live up to our highest values, our, the mission of what we're here, here to do. So I'm grateful for this conversation and thank you for welcoming me into your office and for being on the Liberal Arts Network. Thank you for having me. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne, and our interns, Dante Smith and Anya Dillon. You can access every episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast online at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on Liberal Arts Endeavor.